Section 22 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 11. The Difference Between the Two Testaments. This chapter consists principally of three parts. 1. Five points of difference between the Old and New Testament, sections 1 through 11. 2. The last of these points being, that the Old Testament belonged to the Jews only, whereas the New Testament belongs to all. The calling of the Gentiles is shortly considered, section 12. 3. A reply to two objections usually taken to what is here taught concerning the difference between the Old and New Testaments, sections 13 and 14. Sections. 1. Five points of difference between the Old and New Testaments. These belong to the mode of administration rather than the substance. First difference. In the Old Testament, the heavenly inheritance is exhibited under temporal blessings. In the New, aids of this description are not employed. 2. Proof of this first difference from the simile of an heir in pupillarity, as in Galatians 4.1. 3. This the reason why the patriarchs, under the law, set a higher value on this life and the blessings of it, and dreaded the punishments, these being even more striking. Why severe and sudden punishments existed under the law. 4. A second difference. The Old Testament typified Christ under ceremonies. The New exhibits the immediate truth and the whole body. The scope of the epistle to the Hebrews in explaining this difference. Definition of the Old Testament. 5. Hence the law our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. 6. Notwithstanding, among those under the law, some of the strongest examples of faith are exhibited, their equals being scarcely to be found in the Christian Church. The ordinary method of the divine dispensation to be here attended to. These excellent individuals placed under the law, and aided by ceremonies, that they might behold and hail Christ afar off. 7. Third difference. The Old Testament is literal, the new spiritual. This difference considered first generally. 8. Next treated specially on a careful examination of the Apostle's text. A threefold antithesis. The Old Testament is literal, deadly, temporary. The new is spiritual, quickening, eternal. Difference between the letter and the spirit. 9. Fourth difference. The Old Testament belongs to bondage, the new to liberty. This confirmed by three passages of scripture, two objections answered. 10. Distinction between the three last differences and the first. Confirmation of the above from Augustine. Condition of the patriarchs under the Old Testament. 11. Fifth difference. The Old Testament belonged to one people only, the new to all. 12. The second part of the chapter depending on the preceding section. Of the calling of the Gentiles. Why the calling of the Gentiles scented the apostles so strange and new. 13. The last part of the chapter. Two objections considered. 1. God being immutable cannot consistently disapprove what he once ordered. Answer confirmed by a passage of scripture. 14. Objections. 2. 
God could at first have transacted with the Jews as he now does with Christians? Answer, showing the absurdity of this objection. Another answer founded on a just consideration of the divine will and the dispensation of grace. 1. What then, you will say, is there no difference between the Old and New Testaments? What is to become of the many passages of Scripture in which they are contrasted as things differing most widely from each other? I readily admit the differences which are pointed out in Scripture, but still hold that they derogate in no respect from their established unity, as will be seen after we have considered them in their order. These differences, so far as I have been able to observe them and can remember, seem to be chiefly four, or, if you choose to add a fifth, I have no objections. I hold and think I will be able to show that they all belong to the mode of administration rather than to the substance. In this way, there is nothing in them to prevent the promises of the Old and New Testament from remaining the same, Christ being the foundation of both. The first difference, then, is that though in old time the Lord was pleased to direct the thoughts of his people and raise their minds to the heavenly inheritance, yet that their hope of it might be the better maintained, he held it forth and, in a manner, gave a foretaste of it under earthly blessings, whereas the gift of future life, now more clearly and lucidly revealed by the gospel, leads our minds directly to meditate upon it, the inferior mode of exercise formerly employed in regard to the Jews being now laid aside. Those who attend not to the divine purpose in this respect suppose that God's ancient people ascended no higher than the blessings which were promised to the body. They hear the land of Canaan so often named as the special, and as it were the only, reward of the divine law to its worshippers. They hear that the severest punishment which the Lord denounces against the transgressors of the law is expulsion from the possession of that land, and dispersion into other countries. They see that this forms almost the sum of the blessings and curses declared by Moses, and from these things they confidently conclude that the Jews were separated from other nations, not on their own account, but for another reason, that is, that the Christian church might have an emblem in whose outward shape might be seen an evidence of spiritual things. But since the scripture sometimes demonstrates that the earthly blessings thus bestowed were intended by God himself to guide them to a heavenly hope, it shows great unskillfulness, not to say dullness, not to attend to this mode of dispensation. The ground of controversy is this. Our opponents hold that the land of Canaan was considered by the Israelites as supreme and final happiness, and now, since Christ was manifested, typifies to us the heavenly inheritance, whereas we maintain that, in the earthly possession which the Israelites enjoyed, they beheld, as in a mirror, the future inheritance which they believed to be reserved for them in heaven. 2. This will better appear from the similitude which Paul uses in Galatians. Galatians 4.1. He compares the Jewish nation to an heir in pupillarity, who, as yet unfit to govern himself, follows the direction of a tutor or guide to whose charge he has been committed. Though this simile refers especially to ceremonies, there is nothing to prevent us from applying it most appropriately here also. The same inheritance was destined to them as to us, but from non-age they were incapable of entering into it and managing it. They had the same church, though it was still in puerility. 
The Lord, therefore, kept them under this tutelage, giving them spiritual promises, not clear and simple, but typified by earthly objects. Hence, when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their posterity, to the hope of immortality, he promised them the land of Canaan for an inheritance, not that it might be the limit of their hopes, but that the view of it might train and confirm them in the hope of that true inheritance, which as yet appeared not. And, to guard against delusion, they received a better promise, which attested that this earth was not the highest measure of the divine kindness. Thus Abraham is not allowed to keep down his thoughts to the promised land. By a greater promise his views are carried upward to the Lord. He is thus addressed, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Genesis 15.1 Here we see that the Lord is the final reward promised to Abraham, that he might not seek a fleeting and evanescent reward in the elements of this world, but look to one which is incorruptible. A promise of the land is afterwards added for no other reason than that it might be a symbol of the divine benevolence, and a type of the heavenly inheritance, as the saints declare their understanding to have been. Thus David rises from the temporal blessings to the last and highest of all, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Psalm 73.26 and 84.2 Again, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Psalm 16.5 Again, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Psalm 142.5 Those who can venture to speak thus assuredly declare that their hope rises beyond the world and worldly blessings. This future blessedness, however, the prophets often describe under a type which the Lord had taught them. In this way are to be understood the many passages in Job, Job 18.17, and Isaiah, to the effect that the righteous shall inherit the earth, that the wicked shall be driven out of it, that Jerusalem will abound in all kinds of riches, and Sion overflow with every species at abundance. In strict propriety, all these things obviously apply not to the land of our pilgrimage, nor to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the true country, the heavenly city of believers, in which the Lord has commanded blessing and life evermore. Psalm 133, verse 3. 3. Hence the reason why the saints under the Old Testament set a higher value on this moral life and its blessings than would now be meet. For, though they well knew that in their race they were not to halt at it as the goal, yet, perceiving that the Lord, in accommodation to their feebleness, had there imprinted the lineaments of his favor, it gave them greater delight than it would have done if considered only in itself. For, as the Lord, in testifying his good will towards believers by means of present blessings, then exhibited spiritual felicity under types and emblems, so, on the other hand, by temporal punishments, he gave proofs of his judgment against the reprobate. Hence, by earthly objects, the favor of the Lord was displayed, as well as his punishment inflicted. The unskillful, not considering this analogy and correspondence, if I may so speak, between rewards and punishments, wonder that there is so much variance in God, that those who, in old time, were suddenly visited for their faults with severe and dreadful punishments, 
he now punishes much more rarely and less severely, as if he had laid aside his former anger, and, for this reason, they can scarcely help imagining, like the Manichees, that the God of the Old Testament was different from that of the New. But we shall easily disencumber ourselves of such doubts, if we attend to that mode of divine administration to which I have adverted, that God was pleased to indicate and typify both the gift of future and eternal felicity by terrestrial blessings, as well as the dreadful nature of spiritual death by bodily punishments, at that time when he delivered his covenant to the Israelites as under a kind of veil. 4. Another distinction between the Old and New Testaments is in the types, the former exhibiting only the image of truth, while the reality was absent, the shadow instead of the substance, the latter exhibiting both the full truth and the entire body. Mention is usually made of this whenever the New Testament is contrasted with the Old, but it is nowhere so fully treated as in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapters 7 through 10. The Apostle is there arguing against those who thought that the observances of the Mosaic Law could not be abolished without producing the total ruin of religion. In order to refute this error, he adverts to what the psalmist had foretold concerning the priesthood of Christ, Psalm 110, verse 4. Seeing that an eternal priesthood is assigned to him, it is clear that the priesthood in which there was a daily succession of priests is abolished. And he proves that the institution of this new priest must prevail, because confirmed by an oath. He afterwards adds that a change of the priest necessarily led to a change of the covenant. And the necessity of this he confirms by the reason that the weakness of the law was such that it could make nothing perfect. He then goes on to show in what this weakness consists, namely, that it had external carnal observances which could not render the worshippers perfect in respect of conscience, because its sacrifices of beasts could neither take away sins nor procure true holiness. He therefore concludes that it was a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, and accordingly had no other office than to be an introduction to the better hope which is exhibited in the gospel. Here we may see in what respect the legal is compared with the evangelical covenant, the ministry of Christ with that of Moses. If the comparison referred to the substance of the promises, there would be a great repugnance between the two covenants. But since the nature of the case leads to a different view, we must follow it in order to discover the truth. Let us, therefore, bring forward the covenant which God once ratified as eternal and unending. Its completion, whereby it is fixed and ratified, is Christ. Till such completion takes place, the Lord, by Moses, prescribes ceremonies which are, as it were, formal symbols of confirmation. The point brought under discussion was, whether or not the ceremonies ordained in the law behaved to give way to Christ. Although these were merely accidents of the covenant, or at least additions and appendages, and, as they are commonly called, accessories, yet because they were the means of administering it, the name of covenant is applied to them, just as is done in the case of other sacraments. Hence, in general, the Old Testament is the name given to the solemn method of confirming the covenant comprehended under ceremonies and sacrifices. Since there is nothing substantial in it, until we look beyond it, the Apostle contends that it behaved to be annulled and become antiquated. Hebrews 7.22
to make room for Christ, the surety and mediator of a better covenant, by whom the eternal sanctification of the elect was once purchased, and the transgressions which remained under the law wiped away. But if you prefer it, take it thus. The covenant of the Lord was old, because veiled by the shadowy and ineffectual observance of ceremonies, and it was therefore temporary, being, as it were, in suspense, until it received a firm and substantial confirmation. Then only did it become new and eternal, when it was consecrated and established in the blood of Christ. Hence the Saviour, in giving the cup to his disciples in the Last Supper, calls it the cup of the New Testament in his blood, intimating that the covenant of God was truly realized, made new, and eternal, when it was sealed with his blood. 5. It is now clear in what sense the apostles said, Galatians 3.24 and 4.1, that by the tutelage of the law the Jews were conducted to Christ, before he was exhibited in the flesh. He confesses that they were sons and heirs of God, though, on account of non-age, they were placed under the guardianship of a tutor. It was fit, the son of righteousness not yet having risen, that there should neither be so much light of revelation, nor such clear understanding. The Lord dispensed the light of his word, so that they could behold it at a distance and obscurely. Accordingly, this slender measure of intelligence is designated by Paul by the term childhood, which the Lord was pleased to train by the elements of this world and external observances until Christ should appear. Through him the knowledge of believers was to be matured. This distinction was noted by our Saviour himself when he said that the law and the prophets were until John, that from that time the gospel of the kingdom was preached. Matthew 11.13 what did the law and the prophets deliver to the men of their time? They gave a foretaste of that wisdom which was one day to be clearly manifested, and showed it afar off. But where Christ can be pointed to with the finger, there the kingdom of God is manifested. In him are contained all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, and by these we penetrate almost to the very shrine of heaven. 6. There is nothing contrary to this in the fact that in the Christian church scarcely one is to be found who, in excellence of faith, can be compared to Abraham, and that the prophets were so distinguished by the power of the Spirit, that even in the present day they give light to the whole world. For the question here is, not what grace the Lord conferred upon a few, but what was the ordinary method which he followed in teaching the people, and which even was employed in the case of those very prophets who were endued with special knowledge above others. For their preaching was both obscure as relating to distant objects, and was included in types. Moreover, however wonderful the knowledge displayed in them, as they were under the necessity of submitting to the tutelage common to all the people, they must also be ranked among children. Lastly, none of them ever had such a degree of discernment as not to savor somewhat of the obscurity of the age. Whence the words of our Saviour, many kings and prophets have desired to see the things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear the things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Matthew 13.17 And it was right that the presence of Christ should have this distinguishing feature, that by means of it the revelation of heavenly mysteries should be made more transparent. 
To the same effect is the passage which we formerly quoted from the first epistle of Peter, that to them it was revealed that their labor should be useful, not so much to themselves as to our age. 7. I proceed to the third distinction, which is thus expressed by Jeremiah. Quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. End quote. Jeremiah 31, 31-34 From these words, the Apostle took occasion to institute a comparison between the law and the gospel, calling the one a doctrine of the letter, the other a doctrine of the spirit, describing the one as formed on tables of stone, the other on tables of the heart, the one the preaching of death, the other of life, the one of condemnation, the other of justification, the one made void, the other permanent, Second Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. The object of the apostle being to explain the meaning of the prophet, the worlds of the one furnish us with the means of ascertaining what was understood by both. And yet there is some difference between them, for the apostle speaks of the law more disparagingly than the prophet. This he does not simply in respect of the law itself, but because there were some false zealots of the law who, by a perverse zeal for ceremonies, obscured the clearness of the gospel, he treats of the nature of the law with reference to their error and foolish affection. It will, therefore, be proper to attend to this peculiarity in Paul. Both, however, as they are contrasting the Old and New Testament, consider nothing in the law but what is peculiar to it. For example, the law everywhere contains promises of mercy, but as these are adventitious to it, they do not enter into the account of the law as considered only in its own nature. All which is attributed to it is, that it commands what is right, prohibits crimes, holds forth rewards to the cultivators of righteousness, and threatens transgressors with punishment, while at the same time it neither changes nor amends that depravity of heart which is naturally inherent in all. 8. Let us now explain the Apostle's contrast step by step. The Old Testament is literal because promulgated without the efficacy of the Spirit, the new spiritual because the Lord has engraven it on the heart. The second antithesis is a kind of exposition of the first. The old is deadly, because it can do nothing but involve the whole human race in a curse. The new is the instrument of life, because those who are freed from the curse it restores to favor with God. The former is the ministry of condemnation, because it charges the whole sons of Adam with transgression. The latter the ministry of righteousness, because it unfolds the mercy of God, by which we are justified. The last antithesis must be referred to the ceremonial law. Being a shadow of things to come, it behaved in time to perish and vanish away. Whereas the gospel, 
inasmuch as it exhibits the very body, is firmly established forever. Jeremiah indeed calls the moral law also a weak and fragile covenant, but for another reason, namely, because it was immediately broken by the sudden defection of an ungrateful people. But as the blame of such violation is in the people themselves, it is not properly alleged against the covenant. The ceremonies again, inasmuch as through their very weakness they were dissolved by the advent of Christ, had the cause of weakness from within. Moreover, the difference between the spirit and the letter must not be understood as if the Lord had delivered his law to the Jews without any good result, i.e., as if none had been converted to him. It is used comparatively to commend the riches of the grace with which the same lawgivers, assuming, as it were, a new character, honored the preaching of the gospel. When we consider the multitude of those whom, by the preaching of the gospel, he has regenerated by his spirit, and gathered out of all the nations into the communion of his church, we may say that those of ancient Israel who, with sincere and heartfelt affections, embraced the covenant of the Lord, were few or none, though the number is great when they are considered in themselves without comparison. 9. Out of the third distinction, a fourth arises. In Scripture, the term bondage is applied to the Old Testament because it begets fear, and the term freedom to the new, because productive of confidence and security. Thus Paul says to the Romans, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 To the same effect is the passage in the Hebrews, quote, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned, or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and quote, etc. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 22. What Paul briefly touches on in the passage which we have quoted from the Romans, he explains more fully in the epistle to the Galatians, where he makes an allegory of the two sons of Abraham in this way. Quote, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Quote. Galatians 4, 25 and 26. As the offspring of Agar was born in slavery, and could never attain to the inheritances, while that of Sarah was free and entitled to the inheritance, so by the law we are subjected to slavery, and by the gospel alone regenerated into liberty. The sum of the matter comes to this. The Old Testament filled the conscience with fear and trembling. The new inspires it with gladness. By the former the conscience is held in bondage. By the latter it is manumitted and made free. If it be objected that the Holy Fathers among the Israelites, as they were endued with the same spirit of faith, must also have been partakers of the same liberty and joy, we answer that neither was derived from the law, but feeling that by the law they were oppressed like slaves, and vexed with a disquieted conscience, 
they fled for refuge to the gospel. And, accordingly, the peculiar advantage of the gospel was, that, contrary to the common rule of the Old Testament, it exempted those who were under it from these evils. Then again, we deny that they did possess the spirit of liberty and security in such a degree as not to experience some measure of fear and bondage. For however they might enjoy the privilege which they had obtained through the grace of the gospel, they were under the same bonds and burdens of observances as the rest of their nation. Therefore, seeing they were obliged to the anxious observance of ceremonies, which were the symbols of a tutelage bordering on slavery, and handwritings by which they acknowledged their guilt, but did not escape from it, they are justly said to have been, comparatively, under a covenant of fear and bondage, in respect of that common dispensation under which the Jewish people were then placed. 10. The three last contrasts to which we have adverted are between the law and the gospel, and hence in these the law is designated by the name of the old, and the gospel by that of the New Testament. The first is of wider extent, comprehending under it the promises which were given even before the law. When Augustine maintained that these were not to be included under the name of the Old Testament, he took a most correct view, and meant nothing different from what we have now taught. For he had in view those passages of Jeremiah and Paul, in which the Old Testament is distinguished from the word of grace and mercy. In the same passage, Augustine with great shrewdness remarks, that from the beginning of the world the sons of promise, the divinely regenerated, who, through faith working by love, obeyed the commandments, belonged to the New Testament, entertaining the hope not of carnal, earthly, temporal, but spiritual, heavenly, and eternal blessings, believing especially in a mediator, by whom they doubted not both that the Spirit was administered to them, enabling them to do good, and pardon imparted as often as they sinned. The thing which he thus intended to assert was, that all the saints mentioned in Scripture, from the beginning of the world, as having been specially selected by God, were equally with us partakers of the blessing of eternal salvation. The only difference between our division and that of Augustine is, that ours, in accordance with the words of our Saviour, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, Matthew 11.13, distinguishes between the gospel light and that more obscure dispensation of the word which preceded it, while the other division simply distinguishes between the weakness of the law and the strength of the gospel. And here also, with regard to the Holy Fathers, it is to be observed that though they lived under the Old Testament, they did not stop there, but always aspired to the new, and so entered into sure fellowship with it. Those who, contented with existing shadows, did not carry their thoughts to Christ, the apostle charges with blindness and malediction. To say nothing of other matters, what greater blindness can be imagined than to hope for the expiation of sin from the sacrifice of a beast, or to seek mental purification in external washing with water, or to attempt to appease God with cold ceremonies, as if he were greatly delighted with them. Such are the absurdities into which those fall who cling to legal observances without respect to Christ. 11. The fifth distinction which we have to add consists in this, that until the advent of Christ, the Lord set apart one nation to which he confined the covenant of his grace. Moses says, 
when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. In another passage, he thus addresses the people. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. That people, therefore, as if they had been the only part of mankind belonging to him, he favored exclusively with the knowledge of his name, depositing his covenant, as it were, in their bosom, manifesting to them the presence of his divinity, and honoring them with all privileges. But to say nothing of other favors, the only one here considered is his binding them to him by the communion of his word, so that he was called and regarded as their God. Meanwhile other nations, as if they had had no kind of intercourse with him, he allowed to wander in vanity, not even supplying them with the only means of preventing their destructions, that is, the preaching of his word. Israel was thus the Lord's favorite child, the others were aliens. Israel was known and admitted to trust and guardianship, the others left in darkness. Israel was made holy, the others were profane. Israel was honored with the presence of God, the others kept far aloof from him. But on the fullness of the time destined to renew all things, when the mediator between God and man was manifested, the middle wall of partition, which had long kept the divine mercy within the confines of Israel, was broken down. Peace was preached to them who were afar off, as well as to those who were nigh, that being together reconciled to God, they might unite as one people. Wherefore, there is now no respect of Jew or Greek, of circumcision or uncircumcision, but Christ is all and in all. To him the heathen have been given for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, Psalm 2, verse 8, that he may rule without distinction from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth, Psalm 72, verse 8. 12. The calling of the Gentiles, therefore, is a distinguishing feature illustrative of the superiority of the new over the Old Testament. This, it is true, has been previously declared by the prophets, in passages both numerous and clear, but still the fulfillment of it was deferred to the reign of the Messiah. Even Christ did not acknowledge it at the very outset of his ministry, but delayed it until having completed the whole work of redemption in all its parts, and finished the period of his humiliation, he received from the Father a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Philippians 2 verses 9 and 10. Hence, the period being not yet completed, he declared to the woman of Canaan, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15.24. Nor in his first commission to the apostles does he permit them to pass the same limits. Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. However plainly the thing may have been declared in numerous passages, when it was announced to the apostles, it seemed to them so new and extraordinary that they were horrified at it as being something monstrous. 
At length, when they did act upon it, it was timorously, and not without reluctance. Nor is this strange, for it seemed by no means in accordance with reason, that the Lord, who for so many ages had selected Israel from the rest of the nations, should suddenly, as it were, change his purpose, and abandon his choice. Prophecy indeed had foretold it, but they could not be so attentive to prophecies as not to be somewhat startled by the novel spectacle thus presented to their eye. It was not enough that God had in old times given specimens of the future calling of the Gentiles. Those whom he had so called were very few in number, and, moreover, he in a manner adopted them into the family of Abraham before allowing them to approach his people. But by this public call, the Gentiles were not only made equal to the Jews, but seemed to be substituted into their place, as if the Jews had been dead. We may add, that any strangers whom God had formerly admitted into the body of the church, had never been put on the same footing with the Jews. Wherefore, it is not without cause that Paul describes it as the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. Colossians 1 verse 26. 13. The whole difference between the Old and New Testaments has, I think, been fully and faithfully explained under these four or five heads, in so far as requisite for ordinary instruction. But since this variety in governing the church, this diversity in the mode of teaching, this great change in rites and ceremonies, is regarded by some as an absurdity, we must reply to them before passing on to other matters. And this can be done briefly, because the objections are not so strong as to require a very careful refutation. It is unreasonable, they say, to suppose that God, who is always consistent with himself, permitted such a change as afterwards to disapprove what he had once ordered and commended. I answer that God ought not to be deemed mutable, because he adapts different forms to different ages, as he knows to be expedient for each. If the husbandman prescribes one set of duties to his household in winter, and another in summer, we do not therefore charge him with fickleness, or think he deviates from the rules of good husbandry, which depends on the regular course of nature. In like manner, if a father of a family, in educating, governing, and managing his children, pursues one course in boyhood, another in adolescence, and another in manhood, we do not therefore say that he is fickle, or abandons his opinions. Why, then, do we charge God with inconsistency when he makes fit and congruous arrangements for diversities of times? The latter similitude ought to be completely satisfactory. Paul likens the Jews to children and Christians to grown men. Galatians 4.1 What irregularity is there in the divine arrangement, which confined them to the rudiments which were suitable to their age, and trains us by a firmer and more manly discipline. The constancy of God is conspicuous in this, that he delivered the same doctrine to all ages, and persists in requiring that worship of his name which he commanded at the beginning. His changing the external form and manner does not show that he is liable to change, in so far as he has only accommodated himself to the mutable and diversified capacities of men. 14. But it is said, Whence this diversity, save that God chose to make it? Would it not have been as easy for him from the first, as after the advent of Christ, to reveal eternal life in clear terms without any figures, 
to instruct his people by a few clear sacraments, to bestow his Holy Spirit, and diffuse his grace over the whole globe? This is very much the same as to bring a charge against God, because he created the world at so late a period, when he could have done it at the first, or because he appointed the alternate charges of summer and winter, of day and night. With the feeling common to every pious mind, let us not doubt that everything which God has done has been done wisely and justly, although we may be ignorant of the cause which required that it should be so done. We should arrogate too much to ourselves were we not to concede to God that he may have reasons for his counsel, which we are unable to discern. It is strange, they say, that he now repudiates and abominates the sacrifices of beasts and the whole apparatus of that Levitical priesthood in which he formerly delighted. As if those external and transient matters could delight God or affect him in any way. It has already been observed that he appointed none of these things on his own account, but instituted them all for the salvation of men. If a physician, adopting the first method, affects a cure upon a youth, and afterwards, when the same individual has grown old, and is again subject to the same disease, employs a different method of cure, can it be said that he repudiates the method which he formerly approved? Nay, continuing to approve of it, he only adapts himself to the different periods of life. In like manner, it was necessary in representing Christ in his absence, and predicting his future advent, to employ a different set of signs from those which are employed, now that his actual manifestation is exhibited. It is true that since the advent of Christ, the calling of God is more widely addressed to all nations, and the graces of the Spirit more liberally bestowed than they had previously been. But who, I ask, can deny the right of God to have the free and uncontrolled disposal of his gifts, to select the nations which he may be pleased to illuminate, the places which he may be pleased to illustrate by the preaching of his word, and the mode and measure of progress and success which he may be pleased to give to his doctrine, to punish the world for its ingratitude by withdrawing the knowledge of his name for certain ages, and again, when he so pleases, to restore it in mercy. We see, then, that in the calumnies which the ungodly employ in this matter, to perplex the minds of the simple, there is nothing that ought to throw doubt either on the justice of God or the veracity of Scripture. End of section 22